Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They may just fall open to that chapter since we've been in it for so long now. I don't know. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When my brother and I were growing up, we reacted to the discipline of our parents differently from one another. And that may be a typical thing. Uh, children are different. People are different. And your children may respond differently to the same you know, correction. And my parents would tell you that I was a pretty proud and stubborn child. When I was corrected, I would just clench my jaw and take it. I would not give you the satisfaction of knowing that I was in pain, whether that was physical pain or emotional pain. I just sort of bowed up and, and bore it. My brother Stephen, on the other hand, was different. He was the bargainer. And he did his very best to postpone his punishment in any way possible but his number one move was to use this phrase, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. And he, he implied that, you know, mom and dad needed to hear some more information before they judged him, before they spanked him, before they grounded him. He needed a chance to further explain something because, you know, maybe he wasn't as guilty as they thought he was. Let me tell you something. None of you kids have ever done that, right? <laughs> Listen, when you stand before your creator in judgment, there's no bargaining. You won't be able to say, God, let me tell you something. First of all, there's nothing you can tell him that he doesn't already know. He's the omniscient judge. And secondly, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, there's no explanation or excuse that will change anything anyway. You will stand. Without Jesus, you will stand completely and helplessly guilty before God. Our text this morning is just two verses once again. Lord willing, I promise we will finish this chapter at some point. But this chapter has been deep and these verses are deep. And rather than cowardly skimming over them, I want us to dive into them because... These verses powerfully remind us of God's sovereignty. A few weeks ago, we looked at God's sovereignty over evil. And that didn't mean that there's friendly associationship with God and evil, but even evil answers to God. And in this chapter, that meant that even the Antichrist cannot rise to power until God removes certain restraints. Well, this morning, we're going to see something similar, specifically how God remains sovereign. And now he remains a righteous judge even when human beings reject him. And but it, in the middle of these very complex verses, there's a simple application that we all need to hear and that we can all take to our lives, and it's this. You need to trust God and serve him while you have the opportunity because there will come a time when that opportunity is gone. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2. We'll read 9 through 12, but focus starting in verse 11. In verse 9, Paul said, Even him, that's the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
In verse 11, this initial phrase, for this cause, your translation may just say therefore, or for this reason, points us back to the preceding verse about the people who have rejected the love of the truth. Instead of repenting before God and trusting in Jesus to save them, these people have declined that. They refuse to welcome God's love in their life, refuse to welcome His grace and His truth into their hearts. But their unbelief, their rejection, does not make God unsovereign. God has a sovereign and righteously judicious response even when people, in their free will, do not choose Him and they choose to reject Him. In a few moments, I'm going to give you a couple other examples from Scripture about this. But in this context specifically, those unbelievers during the time of the Antichrist, Paul says in verse 11 that for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. Paul does not say that God sends a lie. Okay, God does not send an error. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. James wrote that. God is not false. But he sends this working delusion to ensure that their previous decision of rejecting him, we might say, plays out even further. One author described it like this, and, and I liked this quote. He described it as an inward working of the inevitable consequences of error. They will fall under the influence of a power working within them, which leads them further away from the truth, since they deliberately chose falsehood in defiance of the truth of God. God subjects them to the power of the error they chose. God uses their choice of evil as the instrument to punish their sin. It's not completely dissimilar to Romans 1 where Paul wrote that men chose to sin and God, as part of the consequence of that, just gave them over to those sins. And so they reap the consequences of their decision. These people rejected God and He will send this powerful delusion. We'll talk a little bit more about what that, that is in just a second. Maybe think of it this way. If you, if you like the Olympics or you ever see track and field, you'll understand what I, what I mean here. Sometimes a runner runs a race and he may set a world record and it doesn't count because they call it a wind-aided race. And it just means that the wind was blowing, blowing the direction he was running in. Okay, The wind didn't change the direction he was running in. It just sort of helped him along. It just sort of pushed him along. And I think that's a good illustration here, a good way to think of this. God did not change the direction these people were already headed. He did not violate their free will. It's wind-aided. What exactly is a powerful delusion? Delusion comes from a family of words that just simply means to go off path or to go astray. And it was used a lot in, in ancient Greek um, language, very literally. And these, these are interesting ways to think about these words. The famous Greek poet Homer, he used this family of words to describe a horse that ran off the racetrack. Can you imagine watching the Kentucky Derby? And, you know, the announcers getting, getting into it, and here they come. And um, instead of making the turn, there's one horse that just jumps the fence and keeps going. Down the stretch they come. Whoa, never mind. Here... He just ran right off the track. 
the philosopher Aristotle used these words to describe insects that, fly, that flew around with no leader and no purpose. There's no point. There's no goal. They're not flying from point A to point B. They're just buzzing around. What are they doing? Nothing. They're just flying around. You take those pictures and you apply them spiritually, and someone who has wandered off path spiritually, their belief has gone astray. They've wandered into error. There's... They're just buzzing around with no true purpose because they've rejected God's purpose, who is Jesus. And, and this, this delusion will be effective. And the word strong speaks to that. And it's very powerful in this context because this is not your typical word for strength or power. But look back in verse 9. When Paul taught that the Antichrist would come through the working or the activity of Satan... Remember, it meant that Satan would be the energy or the power, the, the effective source behind the Antichrist. Satan was the one working behind the scenes. This word strong is the same Greek word for working or activity that Paul used in verse 9. So, Satan's not the only one working. He's not the only one who is active, who has energy, who is, who is behind the scenes even when Satan is at work through the Antichrist, God is still at work too. And so God will send this working delusion, this powerful delusion to people who have already rejected Jesus in favor of who knows what false belief. So that when the Antichrist comes to the scene, notice the end of verse 11. Here's why God will do this that they should believe a lie. A better and more literal translation of the end of this verse is that they should believe the lie. I don't remember if modern translations indicate that or not. Maybe they say what is false. But it's literally that they should believe the lie. And that's important. This is not, it does not have the idea of people just believing different wrong things. That happens in this world right now, doesn't it? I mean... It's not different messages, different falsehoods. Paul has a specific lie in view. What do you think that lie is in this context of chapter 2? You go back to verse 4, what is the Antichrist telling this world? He will set himself up in the temple of God, proclaiming to himself, showing this world that he is God. That's the lie that Paul's talking about here the specific false message of the Antichrist. In fact, the word translated as lie or false here in verse 11 is the same word he used in verse 9 to describe the false or lying miracles, lying wonders of the Antichrist. Same word. If you remember that, uh, the idea of the false miracles, it didn't mean they were fake. They were just false. They weren't unpowerful, but they are unholy. Because these are miracles and signs that do not point people to the truth about Jesus, but they deceive people into accepting the Antichrist. Well, the progression is almost too simple. People who have already rejected Christ in verse 10, they've already rejected the love of the truth. 
Now in verse 11, we see that God will send them this effectual delusion so that they who have already rejected him will specifically accept the lie of the Antichrist. And that progression is so important because nothing God does undermines man's free will. There's a perfect balance between man's free will and God's sovereignty here. These people have already made their decision. They have already rejected the gospel. And so if you think about it, in one way, nothing's changed. They don't believe Jesus. They never did anyway. In another way, it has changed. Because now they do specifically believe the lie that the Antichrist has put out in this world, that he is God, that he deserves their loyalty, that he deserves their heart. And so they, they wandered off the path in their own free will, but God in His sovereignty has allowed that decision to advance to the point where they believe the man of sin is telling the truth. You may just think of it this way. They made their choice and God sealed their choice. God sent something or will send something that will ensure that their rejection of Him if I can use this, this phrase, matures to the point of accepting as God the most evil man there has ever been. And at that point, there's no turning back. There's no getting back on the racetrack. I want to show you a couple of other examples in Scripture to help us sort of understand this idea. If you'll turn to John 12, that's, that's the first example we'll, we'll look at. John chapter 12. This is obviously in the Gospel of John, so we're, we're jumping into the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we'll start in verse 37 and read one of the saddest and most disappointing verses in the entire Bible. John 12, 37. But though He, that's Jesus, but though He had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on Him. Wow, isn't that sad? The Jews had some expectations about their Messiah, and they had some things that they believed the, only the Messiah could do, certain miracles that, that only He could perform. And I've mentioned these from time to time. There was, there was four very special miracles to the Jews. Cleansing a Jewish leper, casting a demon out of a mute man, healing a man born blind, and raising someone from the dead who had been dead longer than three days. Well, guess what? Jesus performed all four of those miracles. John even recorded two of them for us. But Jesus didn't even stop with those four. He went above and beyond their expectations. John would later say Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And he added, were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This world couldn't contain the unabridged works of Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't even come close to recording us uh, recording for us everything that Jesus did. But it records more than enough so that you know the truth about him, so that you know he is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And he performed countless miracles. But remember from last week, miracles are not the end game, are they? They point to something greater. They're like that test drive that's hopefully going to influence you to make the investment. 
But the Jews as a whole refused to make that investment. They didn't believe on him, John said. And John's wording is so condemning because it gives the picture of a continual or a repeated rejection. They didn't just see one sign and shrug their shoulders and say, I'm not convinced just yet. They saw countless signs and continued to reject him over and over and over. You say, how did God remain sovereign when that happened? Let's look at verse 38. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 38, John quotes from the famous chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It's that section of Isaiah that describes the suffering servant, but it begins with this sort of rhetorical question, who's believed our report? Who's seen this power? Well, sadly, in the life of Jesus, the very people who witnessed the miracles rejected the message. And that's how Isaiah starts off this chapter. And John refers to that. So, so think about this. God is so sovereign that he used the unbelief of the Jews to fulfill Scripture. And let's keep reading a little bit further. You'll see that John goes deeper, and this should remind you of 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse 39 and 40. Therefore, they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? John's not soft about this. He said they could not believe. And that's what it means. At some point, they lacked the ability to believe in Jesus. You say, how, how is that possible, Brother Matt? How can someone not be able to believe in Jesus? John gave the answer in verse 40 with another quote from Isaiah. God removed that ability. God blinded their eyes. He hardened their hearts. And now before you start squirming and feeling uncomfortable that God did this, don't forget that this all began in verse 37 in spite of the incredible amount of miracles that Jesus did, they kept on rejecting him. Well, it didn't surprise God. It happened just as he prophesied. And since they continually refused to believe, and therein is the human responsibility, therein is their free choice, at some point God ultimately sealed that decision and they could not believe. Therein lies God's sovereignty. Think about it this way. In verse 37, they would not believe. So in verse 39, they could not believe. So God remains sovereign even in the face of man's unbelief. Look at Exodus chapter 4. There's another very good illustration of this, of this idea. This balance and tension between human humans making their own decision and yet God remaining sovereign and, and fulfilling scripture and fulfilling his purposes. Exodus chapter four, we're going to jump in the middle of the very famous story where God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush that just keeps on burning. It, it doesn't ever burn up. It's never consumed. And Moses goes to see this and it's God revealing himself to Moses and he asks Moses or 
I should say, commands Moses to go back to Egypt and deliver his people. And notice what God told Moses in verse 21. Exodus 4, 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Well, there it is. God prophesied that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and not listen to Moses and let the people go, right? But now turn over to Exodus chapter 8. And as we progress through the story of the Exodus, you see that God did not undercut Pharaoh's free will. Look at chapter 8, look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, one of the plagues was stayed. He hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Look over at verse 32. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Now look over at chapter 9 and verse 12. What happened this time? And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. The progression is important. In chapter 4, God in his supreme foreknowledge prophesied that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And he kept his word. It's almost... It's almost funny in verse 12 there, as the Lord had spoken unto Moses, as if, as if we're surprised that God actually carried out his promise. He kept his word. But that did not mean that Pharaoh was without a choice. Pharaoh exercised his own free will multiple times and hardened his heart. A decision God knew he would make. Sure, he's omniscient. And only after that did God harden his heart. Very similar to the Jews during Jesus' day. God prophesied they would reject His Son. That didn't mean individually they had no choice. It demonstrates God's omniscience. They made their choice. At some point, God sealed it. He didn't violate their free will, nor was He unsovereign. So how does that fit with our text this morning? Well, look back at verse 12, 2 Thessalonians 2. And this answers the question as to why God would harden someone's heart. Why God would seal that choice. Why would he send a working delusion to someone to believe the lie of the Antichrist? Verse 12 gives us the reason. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's why. So that they are fully condemned. Think back to Pharaoh. Was God wrong to bring his judgment against Pharaoh? It's not a trick question. Absolutely not. Pharaoh continued to reject God. He continued to disobey Moses' demands. Therefore, his guilt is undeniable. Pharaoh had no defense, no excuses, no justification that he could offer. He couldn't call God unfair, unjust, unloving, you name it. He was totally, obviously, overwhelmingly guilty of disobeying God. 
So God was unquestionably righteous when He poured out His devastating judgment upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon her false gods. They were guilty. The same thing will be true with those who trust the Antichrist. They're already condemned by rejecting Jesus. How much more when they embrace the Antichrist Like Pharaoh, their guilt will be undeniable. They made their choice. And at some point, because of God's sovereignty, that's the only choice left. So when God judges them, He is so sovereign and so righteous because they are totally guilty. Do you think that anyone who rejects Jesus to believe the lie of the Antichrist will have anything they could say to King Jesus when he steps foot on this earth and destroys the man they believed in? No. There is no excuse. But listen, here's where it gets personal. Forget these prophecies for a minute. Forget the end times. Forget the Antichrist coming. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are condemned already. John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, right? Let me read John 3.18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Praise the Lord for that. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't trust in Jesus as your Savior, there is no excuse you can offer when you stand before God in judgment. You can't say, I'm not as guilty as you think I am. Let me tell you something. you reject Jesus, you are totally, obviously, overwhelmingly, helplessly guilty before God. You're already condemned. Say, then why does God not just judge people immediately then? Why does He wait? Why does He withhold punishment? Why did He give Jericho seven more days? Well, there's two sides of that coin. One side has to do with God's grace and patience. And the other side has to do with his righteous justice and ensuring that someone is in fact truly, completely guilty and ripe for judgment. In Genesis 15, God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land. And we sort of talked about that with Moses in the burning bush. They were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. God promised though to Abraham that he would bring them back he would bring the Israelites back to the promised land. And God told Abraham this, They shall come hither again. They'll be back. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Isn't that interesting? The Amorites were an immoral, idolatrous Canaanite group that, that God would judge through the Jewish conquest of the promised land. But God was not ready to judge them yet. Not during Abraham's life. Because on the one hand, he is so very patient. He gave the Amorites 
centuries to repent. He gave them so much time, more time than I would have ever given them. Generation after generation after generation could have turned from their immoral false gods and their wicked practices to serve the true God of the universe. So in God's grace and patience, he, he stayed his hand of judgment for 400 and some odd years. The Amorites did not repent. Instead, they refused. And so over the centuries, they just kept filling up the cup of God's wrath until their guilt was full. There's nothing they could say. They're completely guilty. That takes a long time for the cup of God's wrath to fill up because he is so patient, right? But there will come a time when one more drop is what overflows the cup. And then it's time for judgment. So God is sovereign either way. God's righteous either way. He, even as men make their own decisions, God always sits on his throne perfectly. But God's desire is for men to repent and believe. Brother Connor quoted this verse in his Sunday school class. For those of you who were in there, I said, act like you've never heard it before. Ezekiel 33, 11. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's what God wants from your life. He wants you to turn from your wickedness, turn from your sinfulness, trust Jesus and live. He'll remain sovereign no matter what you choose. Your decision, whether right or wrong, will not unseat the God of the universe from off his throne. He wants you to trust him. So when the Antichrist comes and so many in this world jump into the deep end of the pool of his deception, God will still remain sovereign. Don't think for a second that Satan's winning. <laughs> Since the people didn't believe in Jesus, God will send them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie of the Antichrist and they will be left without any excuse. Totally guilty. If you're here this morning, if you've never repented and trusted Jesus to save you, do not put it off. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, that's a good thing. Conviction's good. It means the Holy Spirit's working in your life. But if you continue to reject him, continually make your decision not to trust Jesus. There may come a day like Pharaoh and like the Jews in the first century, like the people when the Antichrist comes, when you no longer have the decision to make because you've been making it. Be thankful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If he is drawing you and convicting you, you submit to his leadership, you repent and trust Jesus while you have the opportunity. He's the only one who can save you. Do that this morning. For those who are saved, we can apply that same principle to our lives. We're not promised tomorrow. So we better take advantage of every opportunity that God gives us to serve Him, to witness for Him, to share the gospel, to to share his love 
some opportunities don't last forever. Let's serve our sovereign Lord while we can. Would you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're truly overwhelmed at your grace and patience. And your righteous judgment is haunting. And so we are so thankful for Jesus. And I pray that everyone here trusts him as Savior before it's too late. Help us to serve you each day and take advantage of the opportunities you give us. Thank you for our church and for each one, Lord, that makes up this body. I pray that you will help us as we serve you. Forgive us when we fail you. And thank you so much for all of your blessings. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.